Hey, it's Dylan, your podcast host. Just a couple of things before we get started. First, big thanks to iTron for sponsoring this podcast and giving Aaron and I the opportunity to go down to iTron Utility Week. Uh, we had a lot of fun and learned a lot. Uh, second, we recorded this at iTron Utility Week in the convention area of the Fairmont Princess Hotel in Scottsdale, Arizona with Dr. Michael Weber. It's a great conversation, but due to there being a lot of pieces in a small area, uh, the mic came out with a little bit of a tinny audio quality. Uh, you can still hear the conversation just fine, but, yeah, but apologies for the dip in audio quality here. Uh, still, great conversation to learn about water and energy, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Z Prime on the Grid, our show about issues concerning the energy industry. I'm your host, Dylan Lockwood. We are here at iTron Utility Week in Scottsdale, Arizona, at the Fairmont Princess. We just got out of the general session. It was a rousing experience where we learned about the resourcefulness index uh, that we're still looking through a bit. We'll be talking with Marina Donovan about that a little in a future episode. And of course, there was a bull that walked across the stage, which was surprising to say the least, but very entertaining. Uh, I'm here with my co-host, Aaron Hardick, research analyst. How are you doing at this event, Aaron? I'm doing really well, Dylan, and the resourcefulness report has a lot of interesting information in it, so I'm excited to talk about that with Marina in a later episode because there is a lot of things that I think are relevant to the conversation we're both about to have today, as well as previous conversations we've had on the podcast. I am a Texan, and I haven't seen a bull that big up close in a very long time. So that was a very surprising, very theatrical entrance by Marina, and I applaud her for that, for pulling that off successfully. I would have been slightly intimidated by the size of that animal, but that was, that was absolutely Yeah, amazing. I wasn't going up on stage, and I was intimidated by the size of the animal. That's enough hyping up our future episode. Now on to the current episode. We've got with us a professor of mechanical engineering at the University of Texas, Dr. Michael Weber. How are you doing today, Michael? Good. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to see you both. Uh, have you been enjoying the conference so far, weather notwithstanding? So uh, so far, it's been good. Actually, I don't mind the weather. A little bit uh, cooler rain's good for us, and we could use the water out here in Arizona. And uh, I think this must be my fifth or so. I try to show the week to attend, and I learn a lot every time. So glad to be here again. Speaking of uh, using the water, we're going to talk about water, water and energy, because I'm really good at transitions. Yeah, water and energy are uh, are really interconnected. You've talked about that before at, at ETS 16, but just as a kind of recap, how 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 closely are water and energy related? What do they bring? Okay, sir. There are a couple of things I like to tell people. First, is that energy and water are important. They're fundamental to modern society. We couldn't imagine it modern civilization without them. So they're really critical to everything we take for granted, such as electricity and you know, comforts of a building with air conditioning and lighting and food and clothes and that kind of thing. So they're really important, but they're also interconnected. And that's the surprise that most people don't realize is how much energy we use for water and how much water we use for energy. And that interdependence is one of the things I study a lot with my students and do research on and do some re uh, reading and writing and speaking about. And that's one of the reasons why I'm here at Trying to Week this year again is because this is a topic close to iTron's part as well. Aaron and I go to a lot of energy events, and 
they're really interconnected, but I feel like water as a utility is underrepresented in that conversation, especially when you compare it to like gas. Uh, so why do you think that is? Water tends to be less at the front of mind for a couple reasons. One is if you have a leak, it wastes a resource, but won't explode and kill you the way other resources might. So the risk to life and death is a little bit different. It's also something that we consider to be a human right, that you need access to water. And if you don't have access to water, you will die, and therefore it's a human right, and therefore it should be cheap and infinitely available and reliable. And so we have certain expectations around water always being there when we need it, whether those expectations are appropriate or not. And so we don't think about it as much because it's so reliable in a place like the United States. In other countries, we think about it every day, but we, we tend to take it for granted. And electricity and natural gas and some of the modern forms of energy are more of a modern convenience. They've come into our orbit, so to speak, in the last hundred years or so, and therefore we are still more appreciative of the magic they offer. Water's been a part of civilization for thousands of years. So I think there are a variety of reasons why water is back in mind. Um, I'd like to see us make it more front of mind, personally. Uh, what challenges does water bring to the grid, and what efforts are being made to address those challenges? Water is important to the grid in a couple of different ways. One is water is used as a source of the steam that's used to spin steam turbines, and steam turbines are responsible for over 70% of the world's electricity. So we need water as a source of the steam. The amount of water we need is really not that much, but it needs to be there in the right form. Then we use water to cool those steam turbines, and their water is very important. In a place like the United States, about 40 to 45% of the water withdrawals every day are just to cool those steam power plants. And then we need water to float barges and ships that move things like coal or liquefied natural gas that are the fuels we use for the power plants to make the heat that makes the steam. So we use water up and down the supply chain of the grid, um, even further back to leach out to the minerals to get uranium from mining or to um, treat the coal that's used before it's used as a fuel. So water is important to the energy supply chain and therefore important to the grid. And that means if water is not available where we need it, when we need it, in the right quality, form, quantity, it creates a vulnerability for the grid. If we don't have water available for cooling, power plants might not be able to operate. If water systems that are used for transportation freeze, we might not be able to use a barge that would move the coal to the power plant. So water is a vulnerability for the system, and therefore we need to be attentive to it. The power sector is aware of this, and I think their awareness is growing. So they're thinking more about resilience plans in case there's a drought, to think about it more about dry cooling systems for power plants, alternative fuels that use less water or require a supply chain that's less dependent on it, that kind of thing. There's a variety of steps the power sector can take. And as we move towards a decarbonized, decentralized grid, actually becomes less water intensive also. So there are a variety of co-benefits as we move to a less carbon intensive and therefore less water intensive grid as well. When I do go to events and I talk to water utility employees, is there's a lot of frustration on their end around you know, funding and cost and who exactly is responsible for replacing and upgrading this infrastructure. But it seems like these utilities, water utilities, are typically three to four years behind electric utilities in terms of implementing technologies and kind of getting these forward-looking strategies around distributed water systems or whatever these new technologies are that are going to create more efficient ways to clean water and, and use water. But a big hurdle exists right now on who is really responsible for this funding and who is responsible for seeing these projects throughout their whole life cycle and ensuring that, you know, not too much capital is spent on the upfront and then you can't, you know, continue out and finish the project um, because you lack the resources to do so. So how do you think that more efficient 
ways of cleaning water and using water in terms of the technologies that we're going to see here today are going to impact these utilities. Are, are utilities really ready to take a, a big step forward with trying to get their hands on some of these systems and, and put them to work right away? Or do you think that there's still kind of some learning that needs to be done around these technologies on how to actually use them to create you know, operational efficiencies as well as more reliable systems? What, what do you think about some of the technologies you're seeing to address these issues? I think generally speaking in the United States, and it's probably true in Europe as well, people don't put the words utility and innovation together side by side for a variety of historical and legacy reasons. And a lot of it comes down to the funding context, who pays for what, who pays for innovation, and who benefits. With a resource like water, which is a fundamental social good, uh, we have expectations for infinite access, reliable access, and affordable access. And the priority among people who have to drink, which is all of us, is usually not innovation. If a utility wants to do innovation, and many of them do, they are in a situation where it's difficult because it's a, because what they produce water is a common good. It's often heavily regulated, and therefore their expenses are regulated. And therefore, if they want to spend money on something new, they need permission from the ratepayers or the regulators or commissioners, whoever their governing body is. And there's sort of different checks and balances in the system. And so if a utility says, hey, we'd like to spend a um, billion dollars over the next 20 years on innovative solutions, they would then have to ask the commissioners to allow them to include that in the rates, which means rate payers have to pay for it, which means you and I would have to pay for that water innovation. And while we might think intellectually we want innovation, oftentimes we push it to have people aren't sure they want to pay for it. And that's a fundamental challenge, is that um, utilities are often victim of this regulatory circumstance where they are not allowed to spend the money on innovation. And that's something that was actually brought up kind of in the general session through the resourcefulness report. Um, I think it said that in terms of general resourcefulness, how, however ITRON defines it in the report, both utilities and customers said that they felt each other were responsible for moving forward with achieving this new level of resourcefulness. They didn't feel like um, the policy, the regulators, were the ones who were supposed to drive drive that. Um, so I, I think it's interesting that utilities are saying, well, I think the customers can do more, and the customers are saying, I think the utilities can do more, but not anybody is really putting the regulators in that spotlight yet to say, you need to lead the way on this, and we will come follow along. But we, we see this in the electric utility industry, too, the, the, the juxtaposition of innovation versus you need to protect the consumer and make sure that the grid is reliable and safe while you're also trying to do innovative things. So I, I think regulators are part of this. Whether regulators should lead the way or get out of the way is one of these tensions in our national conversation about this. I'd like to see more room for innovation, which means that utilities can and should invest in R&D, and many of them would like to but aren't allowed to. Many of them don't really care, and so we might need to get on board with that. There's also a role for national or state-level policymakers to either invest directly in R&D or encourage it. And uh, for example, at the federal level, we have a Department of Energy for energy and invest billions of dollars a year in energy R&D. The total amount of federal R&D for water is less than $1 billion, even though water is fundamental to our $20 trillion economy or whatever the size of the economy is. So we have a, a big economy and not much is going into water R&D, even though it's the underpinning of all of it. So I'd like to see more engagement at the federal level, more engagement at the utility level in industry, you know, also among customers and stakeholders. We all have a role to play. We all need to get on board. I think that's part of it. I think if we're just waiting for the other person to take the lead, then no one will take the lead if there's no incentive to do so. And I think with a regulated resource, a common good resource like water, it's this tension between technology, innovation, private markets, regulatory context, consumers and providers that will drive this conversation. 
And I think for the last 100 years or so, the emphasis has been on reliability and access, rightly so, which is clean access to clean treated pipe water has been really fundamental. And now that we have universal access, maintaining cleanliness and innovating to reduce waste will be the next part. And that's what I encourage. So Dr. Weber, you know, I'm, I've only just kind of found my feet in the energy space. I don't even know all that much about the water space. So uh, to me, what seems like the biggest, the biggest difference between water and electricity as services, as you, uh, from the from a utility perspective, is that you can store water very easily, or mo a lot more easily than you can store, you can store electricity. So a lot of electricity R and D is going into not only finding storage solutions, but also it's really really important that uh, that you that usage is being tracked and modeled in such a way that you're able to generate appropriately. And I know, I know water is a little bit that way, but um, I'm wondering what exactly the modern Water, what the modern water challenges are. So water is fundamentally easier to store, as you know. You can put it in a tank, you can put it in a, a pond or a ground reservoir. There are a lot of different ways to store water. Usually at our homes, we have a little bit of water storage and hot water heater, for example. So water is very easy to store, and it's important to store, and that makes a difference in electricity, which generally speaking is balanced in real time, which means that electricity is generated the moment we need it. There is electricity storage on the grid, and often that storage is done through water, actually, through something called pumped hydroelectric storage, where electricity is used to pump water uphill, maybe at night, maybe excess uh, capacity or excess generation capacity, but lower demand. And that water can run downhill during the day to generate electricity as you need. So we actually use water as a storage vehicle for electricity, and it's the largest scale storage available in the world, much bigger than batteries, for example. Uh, batteries are getting better. They certainly work on our phones, our laptops, but at bulk scale or grid scale, they're not quite. The challenge of pumped hydroelectric storage is you need a lot of water and you need altitude differences to do it. And that works great in places like Colorado and Switzerland and Michigan. It doesn't work great in Texas where we have flatter terrain and less water. So there's a regional specificity to this that is hard to get on a universal basis. And so we need a, a suite of solutions. Water storage is an option for electricity storage, but we also need it for water because we have variability in the grid on a second by second basis. We have variability in water on a day by day or season by season, year by year, decade by decade basis. So usually water storage is seasonal. We store water in the rainy season to use it in the dry season, for example, to irrigate crops. But sometimes we store water for years because you might have a wet year followed by five to 10 years of drought that kind of thing. So having multi-year storage for water is important. Water is easier to store, but the burden of storage is much longer in duration than what we need for electricity. Electricity really is day to day. We're not trying to store electricity in the winter for use in the summer the way we are with water. So they both have their challenges, and they're both dependent on the underlying resources. And there is some interconnection where we can use water as a storage device for electricity. We can also use treatment of water, treatment of water as variable demand to achieve the same thing as electricity storage, where we have water treatment plants that operate all day long to treat water, but we can vary that water treatment to help balance out the grid. So the interconnections become useful here if we do it the right way, and the storage differences are pretty critical. If we have water storage in the West right now, where there have been some dry years in California, Nevada, or Arizona, where we are now, if the snowpack is lower than normal, that means the Colorado River or other basins get less runoff and less water, and that becomes a problem for cities like Las Vegas and Phoenix and Los Angeles, where people might not have water they need, and that becomes a real life death situation in some cases. Earlier this morning, iTran CEO Philip Meese had a, he had a presentation that said that by, I think, 2030, 
I'm going off of memory here, but it was like by 2030, two thirds of uh, two thirds of countries will experience a water shortage event. So it uh, it's two thirds of the global population will face shortages by 2025, and 1.1 billion lack access to water today. Good note taking, Aaron. If water sh shortages are going to become more and more common, how how are we preparing for that? I think the water crisis is something we don't feel in the United States as sharply as it is felt around the world. The fact that you can measure water scarcity today to the tune of billions, which is, is really dramatic out of the population of over 7 billion, over 1 billion do not have access to piped water, treated water, clean water. There's about a billion plus who also do not have access to sanitation, which is really a wastewater management system. So we're using drier latrines or going to the bathroom out in the fields or creating all sorts of water quality problems from runoff there. So this is a problem at a very large scale. The energy problems, similar scale, there's about a billion people plus who don't have access to modern energy forms. So they're burning cow dung or straw or wood for their energy, and that has all sorts of air pollution problems. So if we have a billion or so people without access to water, a billion or so people without access to wastewater management systems, and a billion or so people without access to energy, that means we have an access problem, and this is a fundamental human rights issue we need to solve. In the Western world, where we have 99.99% access, we think about cleaning up our act, and how do we reduce the impact of our access. It's great to have access to these all sorts of economic opportunity, but the accumulating effects of our waste streams into the atmosphere, laying of water is really starting to inhibit our ability to thrive because of air pollution and that kind of thing. So we need to clean up our access, so to speak, but at the same time, we need to make sure people that don't have access have access. And this is the dual challenge of the world. How do we increase access on one hand while reducing impact on the other? That means we're gonna need cleaner options, better technologies, more data, better management systems, better attitudes, better consumer decision-making, that kind of thing. We need everything. And on the water issue, it's really about life or death. I think for energy, it's really about quality of life or death. And that's the way I think about it. So if we have a billion people without energy, and if we got them energy, then they would have a better quality of life and more opportunity. But if they don't have access to water, they will die early or won't even be able to make it. So we have to take these issues seriously and invest the right kind of brain power to solving them. One thing I'm interested in here at ITRON Utility Week is, uh, like I said earlier, the exposure to the different utilities that I don't usually get to hear from all that much, being that we generally deal in electricity. Um, but like you said, they're all they're all interconnected. How how would you describe the utility ecosystem, meaning the relationships between the ways that different utilities, you know, energy, gas, water, even maybe telecom, interact with each other to provide the best services they can? If we think about the future, the best way to have these utilities interact would be more integrated and more engaged with each other. It's not unusual for a city to have a water utility that's separate than the wastewater utility, which is separate than the solid waste utility, which is separate than the electricity utility, which is separate than the natural gas utility, which is separate than the telecom utility, which is separate than the cable utility, which is separate than Google. So you have all these divisions, and that can be a challenge because in the future, I think it'll be a more interdependent, integrated world where we want all these utilities working together because we might have to make decisions that hurt one but benefit the other. Let's take the example of water heating. Water heating in the United States is responsible for 4% of national energy consumption. This is a phenomenal number. So 4% of national energy consumption just goes into heating water, and heating water is not a life or death situation for the most part. It's a personal comfort situation because we prefer hot showers, hot showers. It has some value for hygiene, for example, for hospitals or for sterilization, for cleaning dishes, that kind of thing. For the most part, hot water is to make our lives more comfortable. And water heating can be done with solar panels or with electricity or with natural gas or fuel, uh, oil, natural gas. The electric water heater is more efficient than the gas water heater. However, 
the natural gas system, it's more efficient than dealing about which way to do it. And if you have natural gas, usually that's more efficient than electric because the natural gas pipelines the power because it plugs into a less efficient system. This is already pretty complex, and I'm sure listening, uh, losing some listeners who aren't already knowledgeable of this. And so that becomes a problem for individual consumers. You need a smart partner to help you figure this out, and that's the utilities. But the electric utility generally doesn't want to come to you and say, hey, don't use electricity that we sell you. Use natural gas from our partner utility because that's better for all of us. That's where you need partnership, where they can work together on this rather than being rivals. That's one example. It'd be great to have data involved in this as well. There are data streams through metering, sensors, automation. There's a variety of things where data becomes important and that really ropes in your cable provider, your telecom provider, that kind of thing. So we need everyone working together to solve some of these problems. And right now our incentive structures don't invite that as often as I think we should. Yeah, and they're all regulated differently too. And some places don't regulate at all, right? So some places you have private markets, um, which tend to be more innovative. It have different price structures. You have regulated areas which tend to prioritize affordability and access. You, you have an inconsistent approach across the nation or even across the state. Like the state the size of Texas has some regulated, some unregulated utilities for electricity, for example. And uh, so I think we have this inconsistency from location to location that can complicate things. And there's benefits to different systems and we should take the best of all of them and put them together. One thing that people are not as aware of as, as they could be, especially as we move into this world that's just data filled, is how much water is actually used when it comes to data and cooling these oh, big yeah. server farms and how much water is being used to actually use our data to keep the servers up and running. Can you talk about, because I think that kind of falls into the conflict of interest of who's using water to do what and, and what they want to pay for to to use it for. Can you kind of talk about that relationship between how much water is really used to make sure that we can continue to access all of this data that we need to get our hands on? Yeah, I think it's a great question. So I think there are three fundamental technical trends we're experiencing right now. So I'm backing up a step to get to this. The first technical trend that's really fundamental is increasing efficiency of our resource use. So we're using less material, less mass, less water, less energy for goods and services than we used to. That's a good news trend. The second trend is increasing information intensity or increasing data intensity of our resource management. And the third trend is increasing decentralization or customization. So the second trend, the rise of data, I think is pretty important and probably won't end for decades. I mean, it looks like it's here to stay. If having more data, more information available about our resources opens up an opportunity for better management of those resources. So that's good news. As resources become more data intensive, however, data becomes more resource intensive. So this is where you get this complex trend where the rise of data means the rise of data centers, and data centers are very electricity intensive for the servers themselves. A rack of servers, say about my height, six feet tall with a variety of computers there, consumes the same power as a neighborhood of homes. It's very electricity intensive just for the chips, the microprocessors, but then they generate a lot of heat. They convert the electricity into heat in their room, and therefore you need a lot of air conditioning. And air conditioning is also very electricity intensive, so you have this double whammy from a data center from the chips and from the cooling. And then we often use water for water cooling in the data center, but that's not the problem. The real problem is the water we use for cooling the power plants to make electricity in the data center. So the rise of data increases the resource intensity of the data centers, and there's a lot of movement to freeze their consumption by improving the efficiency of the chips and the systems, that kind of thing, and that's helping. But it does have this sort of funny conundrum where we can use data to improve our resource efficiency, but data has its own resource impacts. Now, the opportunity for savings from the data should overwhelm the amount of resource needed for the data. So we should get many more benefits from the data centers than the cost, but it's not like there's zero impact. So even though these utilities all kind of have uh, 
have different spheres that they're working in. A lot of the problems they're dealing with are actually fairly, fairly similar. Uh, another, uh, another thing we saw from uh, the resourcefulness report is that uh, all is that utilities across the board are dealing with infrastructure problems. Now we've talked we've talked a lot about uh, infrastructure problems in the in the energy space because of how you know just this, the times at which they were built means that the end of life of a lot of these assets are coming up now. But also because we're digitalizing everything, that also means that the, a lot of the infrastructure becomes quickly outdated. Um, I was wondering, and I know Aaron, I think you have some of the some of the data on this. What the issues are across water and gas, and why the why they're yeah, Dylan. In the um, resourcefulness report in the general session this morning, um, they said that aging infrastructure challenges in the U.S., particularly related to water, um, there are two hundred and forty thousand water main breaks each year. Um, to me, that just seems like a lot, but I don't know how to synthesize that information. What exactly does that mean? How, how bad is 240,000 water main breaks each year, and what, what exactly does that mean? So 240,000 main breaks a year sounds like a lot to me. That's a pretty big number in absolute terms and relative terms. There are about 320 million Americans in the United States. So that means there's about one water break for every, I don't know, 1,300 people, something like that. I'm doing the math in my head, so I'm probably off on that. But uh, you probably know through your orbit, a thousand people, between all your friends and family and student colleagues and student group activities or wherever you are, your professional colleagues. And that means someone you know has been affected by water main breaks at some point uh, in the last year. That means you give over your life. I mean, did you experience a water main break? Yeah. All right, so it's one out of three people here at the table, not one out of a thousand. Uh, but this, this seems substantial. Uh, and I think this is a lot, especially for an advanced, rich economy where we have a lot of opportunities. We don't have to have that. Uh, it, it's a natural consequence of aging infrastructure. You build infrastructure that lasts decades, sometimes centuries, and it's going to crumble at some point, no surprise. I think the opportunity here is to avoid the waste that comes with this break, and therefore maybe um, building a system that's more resilient or identifying the breaks or leaks faster. So this is a real opportunity, especially with water. Sometimes when a water main break happens, we don't know because the leak is underground. We don't know until water is bubbling out of the surface through the road or the sidewalk and someone calls and says, yeah, there's like a little water fountain in the middle of the road. That seems unusual. And then they'll go investigate the water main break. So this is where an opportunity for data is particularly useful because if we could track more closely, more finely monitor where water flows and how, and then we will then be able to detect leaks or losses along the way. And I think that's the opportunity. I think we zoom in more quickly, fix a leak before it's a bigger problem. You lose fewer gallons. You also can do predictive maintenance if you have more data to figure out where the leaks are going to be before the leaks happen. So I, I think this is where the opportunity is to reduce waste, is avoiding that loss of water. Something like 10 to 40% of treated water is lost or leaked between the water treatment plant and our meters at our homes. Big numbers. Let's solve that. And by the way, if you solve that, you also save energy that went into that treated water as well. This is where data and sensing will really help us, I think, because instead of relying on witnesses to call in, we'll have more automatic response. And we actually do, um, Z Prime partners with another uh, conference called the Smart Water Summit, and we surveyed 300 uh, water, water utility professionals, and we asked them, you know, what is, what is the main spending priority for your 2018 budget? And it was, in fact, reducing water loss through leaks and, I, I believe, theft. Um, but a small anecdotal story, when you brought it up, you're, you asked, you're like, have you guys not experienced a water leak? Last year, I went home to visit my parents in Dallas, and 
my mom told me that I wasn't allowed to take a shower in my bathroom because, in fact, there was a water leak right outside. And so I, being the research analyst that I am, I went out and started talking to the to the crew, and I was like, what, what happened? And they was like, oh, there's a leak. And I was like, well, I, rem I vaguely remember driving by yesterday and seeing water running down the road, but you guys are here today, almost 24 hours later, and they were like, yeah, well, we, we didn't know until, some, until your neighbor actually called us in and was like, hey, there's been water coming out of the ground for the last 12 hours. Is somebody, is somebody gonna come and fix it? The, when cities know, they respond pretty quickly. The question is how quickly we can let them know. They don't want to waste the water. Probably they don't want to waste the water, but they also don't want to damage the roads and the soils and the sidewalks. The, the water needs to be really damaging. And that's part of it. And we live in a very rich part of the world with relatively new and relatively good infrastructure. Imagine if you live in a part of the world where they don't have infrastructure of the same quality or the same vintage. That could be a real challenge. And they might not have the money to do the repairs either. So we're fortunate, yet we still have these problems. Imagine where it can be elsewhere. I've had all sorts of water leaks at my house. I know people who have leaks inside the house that's a lot of damage. Um, and just take your home and the damage from your home, which could easily be thousands and tens of thousands of dollars if you have a leak in your home. And multiply that by the 110 million households we have in the United States. Then you add up all the sidewalks and roads and cities we have, and what's that all worth? It's trillions of dollars at risk for leaks, plus the lost resources itself. So it's an opportunity for data and sensing to tackle that and manage it better. That's a place to start. And just as a clarification question, uh, in a previous episode, we talked about how or we learned that electricity infrastructure, namely the, the cables, uh, one of the reasons that they were starting to wear down now is because they were laid during the, you know, the rush to the suburbs in the 60s and 70s. And then, so because of that, it started, like, just that's the life, basically the lifespan of them. So a lot of the sub suburban cables are happening now. Is there a similar historical reason for why now is a, now is a serious uh water infrastructure problem. Yeah, if you look over the history of water infrastructure, we've had different build-outs. Uh, late 1800s, we started to deal with water infrastructure to avoid outbreaks of disease, that kind of thing. Did a massive build-out about 100 years ago with cast iron that last 100 years. Did a post-war II build-out with steel that last 70 years. And then did another build-out in the 70s and 80s with PVC that last 40 years. So if you've done the math while I've been speaking, you'll realize that the 100-year, 70-year, and 40-year pipes are all collapsing at the same time, which is right now. So we had to rebuild it, probably, which was fine. You can't build infrastructure and expect it to last hundreds of years. But it does mean we need to be ready to pay for the rebuilding and repair when it's time. And that can be quite expensive. It works out to be about $20,000 per person in the United States um, to solve this, maybe more, for our water and wastewater infrastructure alone, not including the electric bill. So this adds up to trillions of dollars, a trillion or so for water and wastewater, another trillion or so for electricity. That's a lot of money. It's what we spent before. It's worth it, but we got to spend it again. And we don't seem like we're really in the mood for this kind of spending in the United States. The trillion dollar infrastructure week proposed by Donald Trump hasn't really taken place yet, but there is some bipartisan consensus that spending money on infrastructure would be useful, but we haven't done it. And I think that's the challenge is if we need trillions, but aren't willing to spend trillions, what's a more efficient way to extend the life of the infrastructure? That's where you get to data and sensing. Maybe we can get away with tens to hundreds of billions of dollars of data to extend the life of trillions of dollars of infrastructure. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that uh, I've been one of the things that I've been really excited to learn about here is just uh, what you know what problems other utilities are, are, are facing that are similar to that are similar to the uh, ones we see in energy and sort of how they're how they're dealing with the dealing with those from a different from a different perspective, a different set of regulatory concerns, and different his, different histories. Um, and a lot of it comes down to who pays and who benefits. Exactly. 
mean, I think that's a fundamental tension in society. So uh, we gotta let you go soon, but I just uh, just one last question: What uh, what are you most looking forward to discussing or learning about here at Utility? So Utility Week, I always learn something new. I look forward to uh, working for me. So people hear what they're up to. I'll be speaking in a session on uh, energy water access and new ways to educate people about it. One of my passions is to educate people about being mindful of our resources, but to be resourceful. And uh, we're showing some clips from a documentary that I'm making and releasing later this year with support from Mitron. Also, learn about some educational apps and online resources that we that we built, and we'll have as a sponsor for Itron, can make it available for free to people, which is really incredible. I think that's a testament to Itron's commitment to education. So I'll be talking about that, and then just looking to meet with some friends and hear what people are up to. And I have to ask, as an Austinite, are, are there opportunities throughout the year for people to come and learn? through the university about water water energy nexus? Absolutely, yeah. So we have a weekly symposium called the UT Energy Symposium every Thursday, 5.15 to 6.15 at the University of Texas campus in Austin. Different energy topics every week. Sometimes they touch water. Uh, open to the public, it's free. So you should come to that if you can on Thursdays. In addition, we do other uh, one-off events. UT Energy Week, I believe, is the second week of February. A three to five day event, depending on how you, you measure it. Includes a full range of topics on energy at the University of Texas, also open to the public and pretty affordable, unless it's like 10 bucks or something like that. It includes a lunch or something. I can't remember the details, but uh, the food itself is worth the price of admission, if not the great conversation. And then also on December 3rd at the Paramount Theater, downtown Austin, we'll be doing a public screening of the documentary Thirst for Power, which is something we made through the University of Texas based on a book I wrote in the documentary sponsored by ITRON. And so they'll be participating in a panel discussion there, along with some other energy and water experts from San Antonio and elsewhere. That'll be a public event, very intellectual, a lot of fun as well at Paramount. So in Austin, we have a variety of opportunities to get people engaged. Aaron, Aaron, same question. What are you, what are you looking forward to over the, over the rest of the day? I'm, I've been talking about this for like the past month now. I am so interested in how people are going to use assets and information around assets to create more efficient systems, whether it's a water utility, an electric utility, a gas utility. Asset information is becoming so fundamental to primary business operations. It truly is amazing. So I'm looking forward to see how ITRON is, is developing solutions around that across the whole value chain. Um, but that's really what my focus is here, to learn more about that. That is exactly where everything's heading, and it's uh, it's uh, really important. Also, cybersecurity, because Facebook lost my user info. Are you one of the ones affected by that? I might have been, but I haven't checked, so I wonder. <laughs> uh, I won't say. Yeah. But to find our research and media, go to etsinsights.com uh, to see Aaron and my saga across Tron Utility Week. You can find uh, you can find us on Twitter at dy lockwood at aaron underscore hardick and at z prime underscore research. Big thanks to Itron for sponsoring the podcast and having us out here at Utility Week. My name is Dylan, and we'll see you all next time.